the SUS News podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, as we always do, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Mr. Egan, and how are you today, sir? I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, You know, all systems are go. Lots of exciting stuff going on in the news. We got you know eleven hundred three thirty three exemptions. Uh, what else do we have that's positive? I'm breathing. No. Yeah, yeah, you're that's right. Yeah, that's always a good thing. No one's throwing dirt in my face. It's good. Um, uh, any uh, any new stories catch your attention this week, Gene? Yeah, I I don't know whether it was reported or not, or whether I uh, I picked it up from one of my FAA friends, but. Uh, uh, I thought it was very interesting that we're starting to see an uptick in things. You know, a year ago you never heard or you hardly heard about it. And and six months ago you may have heard about one encounter with a a manned aircraft and an unmanned aircraft, you know, every once in a while. We hear now that the FAA is getting two reports a day of unmanned aircraft being in flight paths of manned aircraft. And I think that's kind of a telling little anecdotal number there because I think we're going to start seeing more of that being reported. And I'm really afraid, and I want to kind of make a, a, a cautionary tale out of this because if that continues, I think we're going to end up with a little backlash before we even get the rule, if you know what I mean. What do you think? Well, no, I I concur with that notion. Although I'm a little, uh, you know, there there is some, um, let's say, news out there. I saw one story where the AMA was kind of trying to distance themselves from rogue drone operators. And I do think that there's a sliding spectrum here of what's a drone and what's not a drone and who's droning and who's a hobbyist and who's just a consumer and who's a professional and all the rest of that. But, I, you know, I hate to beat up on the FAA, but uh, they wanted it all. Remember, they fought for it. They they wanted it all, and, uh, you know, it's their charge, and they need to get out there and enforce their rules, as I see it. I did call, and I think I said that last week, I called over to the JFK FAA office and asked, you know, they had three sightings in a couple of hours. Did you send anyone out, bust out the binos, anything, something? No callback. Um, so I don't know, as far as all these sightings go, what the enforcement is, what's going on, who's doing the field investigations, but I am going to say that this is not a blind side because I told them this stuff was going to happen, I don't know how many years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, and you better come up with a good enforcement program. Um, you know, that, that should be one of your main concerns, and uh, I said it's not going to be like ramp checking people because a lot of this stuff will be all over the place. You know? So... I don't know. They got their work cut out for them, but you know, there's that old thing about be careful what you wish for. And I think that might be uh, some of it here. And you know, uh, uh, the other the other thing point I want to make about that, as far as being a, um, a group, it's not really my job to go out and educate consumers about this. You know, I don't know how do you feel about that. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting. They, they did put out that the, their new um, – oh, it's, it's not new, but uh, sometime back they sent out uh, the uh, the memo to their ASIs concerning ramp checks. 
you know, they're they're no longer you know, considered ramp check because they can't do a lot of the things that they used to do. I think that's part and parcel to some of the, the lawsuit that we were involved in. But, you know, they, they've started the education and compliance program. And I think that's a part of what their enforcement is going to be is they're going to start educating people on, you know, how to comply. And it's going to be interesting to see what the next step is. I mean, because you can tell people for so long, but again, there's been no real enforcement. And there's, I think we've had two fines to date, and one of them was dropped and still in contention, and the other one was uh, greatly reduced. And I think the gentleman paid it for the Class B incursion in New York City. So, I mean, it's not a real good record of, of, you know, actually going out there and, you know, putting the clamps down on people. But, uh, you know, it's it's a start, and, and maybe they will come up with an enforcement side of it. I, I agree with you. They're going to have to one way or another. Um, I think that there are so many people out there now that say, you know, hey, they're, they're not going to come after me. I'm too small. They're, they're not going to be able to catch me. I can get in my car and drive away, whatever. Um, right. So it, it is going to be an issue. It, it's going to be a, a real tough nut to crack, apparently, and uh, they're going to have to, to tackle that one. And it's going to be interesting to see if Congress comes out with any direction on the reauthorization like they did in the last one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't well, that last. I mean, next month, you know, reauthorization, that's funny. Next month, remember, it's full integration into the NAFTA. September 2015. I don't think that's going to happen. Unless the FAA uh, has just really been playing possum. Did, didn't the uh, reauthorization, I may be mistaken here, but I'd heard that the reauthorization was slipped to first quarter of 16. Oh, yeah, the, the 2015, yes. I was talking about the 2012, but uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I got, you know, I got more information on this stuff. Um, I do think, though, you know, when it was on the arc, they did talk about uh, that some people from ATC basically were saying, like, you know, if you were a hobbyist, because this is another thing, is how do you know somebody's a hobbyist and not a hobbyist? And, uh, you know, back on the arc, a, the air traffic organization was like, basically, if you're not on the hobby field flying, you're not a hobbyist. Um, and that was, that was one way they were going to approach the enforcement part of this, and I don't say that that door is totally closed because uh, really it's only the only way that makes sense. Basically, if you're not on the hobby field, then you either have to have a license or you know some sort of certification. It would be uh, easier to spot folks, let's say, or easier to know who's doing what. But we'll 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 see. You know what the new AC 9157 looks like. I mean that one was like kind of a blip on the radar. It came out and put the new document out, and then they retracted it real quick. Oh wait, that was a mistake. Um, you know, all I can say is the new guy that's going to be head of the unmanned aircraft systems integration office. Boy, he's that that guy is going to be the hot seat guy. What do you think? Yeah. I wonder if they're going to have. Well, I'm sure they're going to have success at finding someone. But yeah, that would be that would be a real tough seat to jump into. No, well, we need a professional whipping boy. We need to get in here <laughs> and uh, take the fall for I don't know 25 <laughs> years of inaction. I could go on, but we don't. We don't want to, uh, you know, see the guy listening now. Wait a minute, I didn't think about that. Here's 2016. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be the guy in the hot seat of Congress. I'm going to be like, how come this mandate didn't happen? 
you know, the press is going to be wanting to know, you know, what we've been doing all these years and what, what all, with all the hand wringing and everything else. But we don't want to scare that guy off. It's a great job. You're going to love it. Everybody loves you. They want to be your buddy. And then when you're done, you can roll out and make, uh, you know, six billion a year salary. It'll be great. Everybody does it. Anyway, we can go on all, all day for that one, but I want to bring on our guest for, for today's show, which is uh, Eileen Shibley from Monarch Makers, Inc. Eileen, are you out there? Morning, Patrick. Morning, Gene. Hi, Eileen. Good morning. I don't know, maybe we scared you off with all that uh, <laughs> bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo, but... Uh, you know, that's what we kind of, we try to do that here. We, we like, you know, talk about what's relevant to this community, and, and those are some of the things that are going to be relevant. But anyway, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about what you're doing. Uh, you know, you've been in this uh, industry or field for quite some time, and if you could, I would like you to please introduce yourself to our audience, a little bio, and how you got involved with unmanned aircraft systems. Oh, Absolutely. And, and no worries about the bureaucracy. I survived a lot of years inside of it. <laughs> um, I uh, um, spent 30 years supporting the Department of Defense. And the last, I guess, about seven years, I ran the unmanned systems shop at uh, the Navy's Weapons Center at China Lake, California. And that's kind of where I developed my interest in, in unmanned systems sort of writ large. Um, during the time that I was in that job, we integrated unmanned systems with manned aircraft uh, in the same in the same pattern, and it was uh, was really a, a fun fun time. So again, that's where my interest came from. I then uh, spent a little while um, working with a group of really smart folks trying to get California named as one of the six test sites. And during the period of time that we worked on that. Um, a few of us uh, techies kind of decided that it was our opportunity to to try to take this word drone and see if we couldn't, since it had been embraced by the whole world, it seems, try to make it into something positive and talk about commercial applications. So we built one and started going around to places talking in an attempt to kind of educate about um, commercial applications. And we kind of accidentally sold one. and. That's when this whole business got started. <laughs> that's how that's how Monarch got started. We had built one of these things, and we were at a training class for a, a sensor company in Los Angeles, and it was a very well attended class, about 42 people, and one of them um, wanted to buy the Monarch, and so we named it and started a business and sold it, and and now we uh, have built a manufacturing plant. And you're you're doing that all in uh, Ridgecrest, California, the high desert. We are in Ridgecrest, California. Um, most people have never heard of it. Uh, we're about 140 miles north and east of Los Angeles, so sort of sort of like halfway between Los Angeles and Mammoth. Exactly. But it, I, I've been out there. You guys had the um, you had the open house. And that was a great turnout, uh, not only locally, but people came from all over the place. And uh, to see the facility, which you have a great facility, and you guys have like, you have like a, a, yeah, it's, a um, lot of hangar space out there. A lot of hangar space. Well, it's, it's also um, just a perfect place to fly. We have 350 clear flying days a year. 
um, we're pretty much unfettered by any type of commercial traffic. We are very remote. Um, there are 20,000 square miles of restricted airspace right, right about where we are. And so we take advantage of that. And when we started our company one year ago, um, we started building these systems and we fly them every single day. And we are, we are feeling very lucky to live in a community that uh, really embraces this technology really forward thinking, really kind of a high tech community and and um uh that's that's been a uh, a good thing going into this. We've got, for example, a farmer about eight miles from our plant and uh he owns a very well established eighty acre pistachio farm and he's kind of given us carte blanche to fly anytime we want. So we do. <laughs> Things like that mm. make a difference. Nice. Well and then that yeah, and the net thing, you know, uh, is big here in California, which we'll go into. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the test site thing because I didn't, like, as you had mentioned, you were you were one of the let's say candidates or prospective mm-hmm. candidates for the test center thing, and we all know that was kind of a a little bit of a roller coaster. Um, I know a lot of effort went into that, but let me just, you know, without, and I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I just, you know, hindsight. Looking back, 2020, on that, and I know you had, like, these these aspirations, a lot of things you said about the community, high tech, forward thinking, all the rest of that. In hindsight, could you give us a, a nutshell of the uh, the test site thing? Are you are you glad? Are you, or are you still a little disappointed? Where are you at with that? Well, I think that um, the community came together, the, our community, but I think that in addition to that, uh, we learned so much in that process. We came up with what I think is probably still the best research proposal that anybody put forward. I know that the technical part of our proposal was rock solid. We ended up being able to meet our counterparts in a lot of the other states. Um, and I and I think that while we were bitterly disappointed to find it to be, I guess you know nobody else will say it. I will. I believe it was a political process. And I think if it had been wholly based on merit, um, it would be different. But having said all that, um, I think it happened, you know, in an okay way for us because it kind of spurred us on to know what some of the art of the possible was in this area. And I'm not sure if we'd become a test site that we would have advanced to this point because I see what's happening with the test sites and I, I'm not inside of it, so I don't really know, but I feel like I'm glad I am where I am. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that test sites, in my estimation, are uh, were a total letdown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another opportunity, and again, I don't want to get too far off the track, but another opportunity, you know, to gather, quote, unquote, I'm doing a little quote things, but you can't see me, data. Um, and totally, totally uh, just flubbed it, you know, and missed it. So uh, it's too bad, but uh, I think in, in, in my hindsight, it's probably better you were able to concentrate on doing something else. So um, you still have the support of the town. I know you have the facility there, and I know some good things are going on. And, and before we get into all the good things that are going on, you guys got a, a Section 333 exemption. Is that correct? We did indeed. 22nd of May. 
And let's talk about the process now. You guys went through all of that. Gene is also going through that. But so you you filed it. Did you do the paperwork yourself? Did you pay fifty grand? Have somebody do it? What what was the process like for you? Um, the process was a bit painful, but but uh, but again, I've I've uh, been through stuff like that before, and so have most of the folks on my team. But um, we we are a new start. Um, I guess you could read uh, broke. <laughs> and so, no, we did not pay anyone. We did it ourselves. We wrote it ourselves. We collaborated um, with no one just because we couldn't really find anyone at that point in time. And the thing that was the most important to us was to move quickly. And so we we just dug in and did it. There were three of us involved and and um, uh, one person wrote the whole thing, and then uh, three of us reviewed it, made changes, added some stuff, that kind of thing, tried to make sure that we had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, um, but uh, we, we did it internally and uh, put it in the system in, uh, I believe, the end of January, 1st of February, and um, uh, received it on the 22nd of May. And okay, so you have that going, and uh, so my next, the next logical question is: What types of applications are you working on? And you, you alluded to some, but you know, uh, maybe you can you can tell us kind of what's going on. Sure. So R three thirty three is for for precision agriculture and for surveying. Uh, we have others in the system too, but they haven't popped out the other side yet. But the one that we do have is again for agriculture and surveying. And when I say surveying, I mean standard civil engineering type. Uh, roads, you know, maintenance yards, bridges, all those kinds of things. Um, our, our primary focus from the beginning has been agriculture. Um, that remains the case, although that's not the only thing we're working on. And in the ag community, um, one of the things that I think differentiates Monarch is that uh, it, for us, it's really not about the aircraft. Uh, yes, we have a manufacturing plant. Yes, we have conceptualized, designed, and built all of our own aircraft. We we build everything in-house that we possibly can. We buy some things, of course, motors, speed controllers, and so on, but most of it we build in-house. Um, part of the reason for that is because, you know, we want to be the technical expert out there, and we are a system engineering house. So it's all about quality for us because the thing that's paramount for us, as I think it probably is for everybody, is safety. So we want to control our destiny by, by doing that. Having said that, it's just not about the aircraft. Um, that's just a tool to get us to a point, in the ag community at least, where we can go out, collect data, turn that data into information that can mean something and that can inform um, a decision. And if if we can't do that, then we're not doing the community a favor. And that's the part right now that I know lots and lots of folks think that they're out there and that they're doing that. And we haven't seen a lot of that. Um, but what we have done is a huge, huge internal struggle to figure out how to put our data part in order. We had two interns at Monarch for the summer. Uh, both of them GIS graduates, both of them working on their master's degrees in GIS technologies. One of them a semester away from the University of Northern Iowa, trying to talk him into coming back. But they built our data department for us. And, and we built it on the premise that 
if we can't take a plethora of data and reduce it to something that truly does look like information that you don't have to be a data analyst to understand, then we're on to something. And so that's how mm. we're approaching that. Um, in addition to agriculture and, and the typical kinds of things that drones are used for in agriculture, which is mapping, uh, you know, our, our particular aircraft, we have designed for maximum flexibility. Um, and what that means is that we have a sensor housing that we built, um, well, we designed it in SolidWorks and, and um, uh, printed it in our 3D printer. But it houses our sensors in a way that if you get a bad wind or a little bit of a rough landing, you're not going to hurt your uh, high-value um, sensors. And we can carry three on any given mission. So we can carry a, an electro-optical, or some people call it an RGB visible, whatever you want to call it, just a standard type camera. We can also carry a, a near IR sensor as well as a thermal imager. And we can do all that in one pass, but we can simultaneously collect that kind of data. Um, now, in addition to that, we do other things in the ag arena too, and um, some fairly sophisticated high-tech things, some not so high-tech. Um, as an example, we've had a lot of farmers just in the last month or so tell us how much of a problem birds are to them and how much it's affecting their bottom line. And so we yep. just recently integrated a, a bird repellent onto the monarch. So we have that as well. It's that kind of thing where we're, we're just kind of trying to respond to the requirements that are out there that, that cause drones to be good for. In addition to ag, as I said, we're doing surveying and then um, our other areas, uh, the energy sector. Um, for oil and gas companies, pipeline stack inspections, um, in addition to that, if you look at where Ridgecrest is, we're completely surrounded by wind turbine farms and solar farms. And so um, there's nothing better than a drone for doing the type of inspections in those arenas. And so we're going after that as well. And lastly, um, not an application, but another thing that Monarch does on a, on a regular basis is offer training. And we started that because when we sell a product, when we sell a drone to somebody, it comes with three days of training. And we got such good comments on our training that we just decided to offer that. And so we, we do those about once every six weeks. And it's a three-day hands-on class. Interesting. And uh, with that training, are you are you're, you're training people how to fly, and then are you training them how to gather data in that three days, or, or what does it look like? The curriculum that we built has the first day pretty much devoted to to rules and regs and airspace. And we, it, again, because safety is paramount, obviously, we want people to know what the current state is with the FAA. Um, what does this mean? What does that mean? What can you do here? What can't you do? All of that. We go through the everything from the 91.57 for hobbyists all the way through the the February proposed uh, rules that came out, and that's kind of the grounding for the first day. Um, and the second and the third days are all about learning about various different types of sensors and data gathering methods and types of aircraft. Why do you want to use a fixed wing for one thing and a, and a why might a quad be better for another thing? So we go through all of that, all different types of sensors, and then we go through, we start with software. 
um, everything from open source mission planner stuff all the way to really sophisticated packages for for data reduction. And and then on the third day, starting on the second day, but on the third day, everybody writes their own mission plan and does their own autonomous flight before they can get a certificate. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, again, we're, we're, we're getting... Uh short on time and I wanted to talk about some some other things though too and the training sounds interesting um, I like that you do the, the training with with the system that you sell uh, that's a good idea uh, it makes things uh, they add more value to the product but uh, next week you're going to do a survey project I believe but maybe you could fill us in a little bit more about it about um, and I'm going to this we have a ghost town here in California it's called Bodhi and uh, it's out there in the high desert, and it's it's kind of amazing that the whole place is kind of just out there and still standing, and all of this stuff is still there. But uh, tell us a little bit about this project that you guys are involved with. Sure, well, we State Historic Park. Uh, we're very excited about this, um, but um, there's a, a GIS expert inside the state park system who I think is also a visionary, and he actually put in a COA which um, the Cal State Park System received and they own um, to map Bodie State Historic Park. And in the COA that he put forward, it named Monarch as the aircraft to be used for this mapping. And there are a couple things that we'll be doing. First of all, there, as an old ghost town, there are a lot of buildings that are in various states of disrepair. We'll be doing aerial mapping of the whole thing to kind of give the, the park that type of perspective, which um, is, is is tough to get any other way at any nice kind of resolution. Um, we will. This is also a cooperative venture. The State Park Service is in charge. Monarch is the aircraft, and um, we're working with uh, UC Merced as well on this effort. Um, so the first part is to map the old buildings, and they're in two different sections. And so we'll complete that, uh, hopefully both in Nader and, and, and with obliques, so that we'll have a really good perspective. You see Merced will be doing the inside of some of the buildings, which will be really fascinating. Um, and then also um, the second part of the project is they've sent forensic dogs in, and there appear to be evidence of, of um, some other kinds of sites that they, they want us to look at down the line. So we'll be doing some of that a little bit later, um, October timeframe. But next week we'll be filming old buildings. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually coming out for that. I'm, I'm uh, kind of interested to see that happen, um, the application. Now, you guys are doing the outside, and you see Merced doing the inside. Is, is that how mm -hmm. it's working? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that ought to be pretty interesting, and a, a, a uh, definitely a let's say positive use for the technology, good professional use for the technology. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I've never been out there. I've looked at the pictures on the internet. It's very, uh, like I said, it's it's uh, really surprising that that's all still standing and all of that stuff is still out there. Um, and this this ought to be something that'll kind of go down in history as uh, viewing or recording this site. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, what, but, you know, as we're closing in on the two-minute warning here, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what are you um, 
Where do you see the future of, of Monarch Makers? Uh, I mean, you, you see uh, you see this ramping up. You see more uses. Do you see is it full steam ahead for you? Do you see a full industry here blossoming out of Ridgecrest? I, I see a, a full industry. Um, it's a nation industry, obviously, and so uh, will it grow? Absolutely. And I believe that the reason that it will grow is because uh, – there, there are clearly stated requirements and more every day, limited only by our imaginations. And those requirements will often have to do with saving time or saving money, which means that the marketplace will dictate where a lot of this goes. And that's why I feel so strongly that this will go. We're going to have some hurdles, clearly. There's some folks out there that are doing things that are um, causing a lot of attention and, and some people are being fairly irresponsible and that's going to slow us down a little bit, I think. But I think what's going to be the key driver is where you can, as a business, see an ROI pretty quickly or see your operation more efficient, see, you know, a, a, a huge safety issue, a time-saving, money-saving by using drones. And that's what I think is going to drive this. And, yes, I think it's going to, going to be a huge industry. And 10 years from now, you know, we won't be talking about drones, you know, any more than we talk about the inside of the iPhone. We'll just be talking about applications, you know. That's what I think. That's my, right. that's my crystal ball. Well, and I mean, you know, you, it sounds to me that uh, you're talking about these applications, a lot of them that are local and whatever else, but you're, uh, I'm, I'm here. By not only by the community, but also the the end users that can benefit, you know, and these different applications you're talking about. You have feeling pushback from from people when you say, "Hey, we can help you with. Uh, we have these rounds that we can help you." Or are they interested in the technology and interested to learn what they can do for them? Um, I I think it's kind of all over the map. I think for the most part, people acknowledge that that we're onto something here. Um, and that these things are going to save time. They're going to save money. They're going to save lives. They're going to do. They're going to do all the things that we've talked about for a long time. Um, even even some of the things that you know a year or more ago seemed a bit blue sky. We'll we'll, we'll get there. And I think that people are becoming more accepting of that all the time. I think there are always going to be that element, you know, that we would never call early adopters, if you will, you know, and they're going to be saying it will never work. Um, uh, you know, we, we had a guy come through the shop and looked at our 3D printer not too long ago, and he said, I just don't think these things will catch on, you know. So there are always going to be those elements. <laughs> That's just kind of human nature, I suppose. But I think that yep. the exciting part is that um, uh, a lot of the really cool things that have happened in the technology arena, like with sensors and with software, are going to propel us forward because they're becoming more affordable. Excellent. Well, uh, before we sign off, could you please, uh, you know, give us the website address? Absolutely. Please, please, please go look at uh, monarchmakers.com. All right. And, um, you know, thanks for being on. I think it was informative to uh, get another perspective from somebody who's actually a CEO of a small business that's using this technology where you're actually getting traction and out there doing something uh, positive. And another time we'll have to have you back on. I'd like to talk about the nets uh, and, you know, the drought and water savings and all the rest of that that's really relevant to California, but it's hard to cram all of it into one half hour. 
and we'll we'll have to do that in the future. Maybe maybe in the fall or something, we'll have you come back on. You can bring some of your your uh, people back on, and and we can talk about the the practical application part of it. I think that's possible. That's great. We'd love to love to any time at all, Patrick. And uh, thank you for all that you're doing out there in the community, and and, and thanks for this opportunity. No problem. And thank you again for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Gene, okay. thank you, buddy, thanks. for for being out there. Okay. Thank you, Eileen. It was great. Good show. Thanks. Bye-bye.